Hello, 5 by listeners. It's Ruth here welcoming you to episode 77, a very special New Year's episode. As 2019 draws to a close, I've looked back and selected five segments from the last 12 months that I found particularly interesting, some for personal reasons and others because they represent the types of review I most enjoy, when someone goes beyond the game to look at something larger. So listen on to find segments in which Laura uses Dixit to look at how we make connections with others, Mason discusses the importance of folk games as he talks about Oh Hell, and Sarah uses Block by Block to challenge both the idea of apolitical games and the safe distance players find in historically set war games. For that personal touch, I'm also adding in some of my favorite 2019 moments by finishing up with proof that I actually got my mother to appear on the show, something I still can't believe, and starting with Mike talking about a great gaming experience we shared at SaltCon that's also in the realm of barely believable. So sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy some of my favorite 5 by 8 moments. When my buddy Rob introduced Ruth and I to hundreds of horses at SaltCon earlier this year, I'm pretty sure I rolled my eyes so hard that Ruth heard them rolling around. But in typical Rob fashion, he assured me this would be a fun experience, as Ravensburger went through the trouble of printing exactly 100 double-sided horse cards to make a literal hundreds of horses. And while with that level of commitment to the game, I had little choice but to buckle in for some fun. Plus, we'd already agreed it was Rob's turn to pick, so yeah. Playing hundreds of horses is a very Dixit-esque experience, but without the pressure of picking the perfect card. Instead, four horses are flipped face up off the stack into the one through four spots on the stable board. Now the active player rolls a die and reads that section off a card. This could be a short story about one of the horses that say works for the police department, but which one? Now everyone looks at the four options and guesses. Take your chit with the number that you feel best matches the story, and when everyone is picked, you all reveal at the same time. Sometimes it's easy to be on the same wavelength. If three of the horses are making silly faces and one is prancing in a field, that's likely the easy pick. Because while I may personally have picked one of the silly horses, you want to match picks with your fellow players. And for half the die actions, hundreds of horses has thankfully removed the silly bit from Dixit about wanting to match the active player, but not everyone. For story, word, and award options, you can match anyone to score. So be on the wavelength as any other player, and you'll be on your way to some sweet Apple rewards. Oh, sorry, did I mention points or apples? Because they are. It's just science. When you match, you get a face-down token that has one to three apples on the other side. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. These are your points for the end of the game. They're totally arbitrary. There's no way to guarantee more points or fewer points for your opponents. Basically, what I'm saying is that if you're playing hundreds of horses for points, you're playing it wrong. Anyway, back to the die and the cards. Horse word and award are the hardest matches for me, because there's so little to go on. Happy? I don't know, they all look happy. Which horse has the fanciest footwork? I don't know, and your fellow players probably don't either. But once you flip your numbered chit, you better believe the table talk will start about how you can't believe they picked that horse, as the horse you picked is absolutely the reincarnation of Ginger Rogers. The heart slash take a horse home result is the most desired. This means you get to pick one of the horses to take home with you. Even if no one matches your pick, and you do still want them to match it for points, but even if they don't, you get to keep one of the horse cards. What are they good for? I don't know. I guess technically they're a tiebreaker, but I've never seen it come to the tiebreaker. It doesn't really matter. Point is, everyone is so happy when they roll that heart and get to pick a horse for their very own. Even I felt happiness and joy at picking which horse I wanted, and I really dislike horses. 
Look, it's a long story involving a much younger me, a horse that wouldn't stop, and me being thrown into a tree. Don't at me. I'm sorry. It's not my fault. Anyway, the last two die faces are new horses, which releases the horses from the stable back into the field, and a whole new set of horses come into the barn for you and your friends to ooh and ah over. Then you get to roll again. And then, free token. Rolling free token is what sealed it for me that hundreds of horses is not about the points because I have never felt so disappointed in getting free points before. No worrying about matching or anything, just here's some points and your turn is over. It is such a letdown. Once all the points tokens are gone, everyone counts up their apples, and the person with the most apples, I mean points, wins. And again, if you're playing for the points, you're playing this wrong. Okay, so let's cover the downsides of hundreds of horses first. It's silly, it's random, you can't really expect any cogent scoring strategy, and player count, 3-4 to four players only, you're killing me here. What are the upsides? Well, horses. Hundreds of them even. Well, 200. Silly, fun, playful table banter, and every time I've played it, at least one person has ordered it. So that's gotta say something about it. Though, I think I surprised Rob by buying it as I groused and grumbled my way through the game, as I often do, but had a blast doing so. Further, while all the adults I've played hundreds of horses with have loved it, my kids have also had a blast playing it as well. Adults love it, kids love it, gamers love it, non-gamers love it. It's just a pleasing game. Which is weird, as I'm sure in some rare instance it could bog down for someone who can't read other players and never matches up, but that's just never seemed to happen in any of my plays. So, caveat emptor and all that, but given my success rate introducing it to other players, I just feel like everyone should at least give hundreds of horses a chance. It's at least a hit for this dry, soulless Eurogamer. Until next time, please don't try and change my mind about horses. They're fine. Really? But if you want to discuss hundreds of horses any further or anything else, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Hi everyone, it's Laura. Every once in a while, I pull an old game off the shelf, something I haven't played or even thought of in a while. It happened a few weeks ago when I had some people over for a marathon game day. We were about 10 hours in and probably should have just called it a night. But like many before us in that same situation, we decided to play one more game. Something that would be manageable for five players who were up well past their bedtimes. We ended up picking Dixit, and as we started playing it, I was like, oh yeah, this is why I still have this game. Dixit is a three to six player family weight game designed by Jean-Louis Rubira and published by Libalud in 2008. The most striking thing about this game is the deck of cards illustrated by Marie Cadois, which are full of strange and dreamlike images. You start each turn with six of these cards, and if you're the active player, you come up with a clue for one of your cards before placing it face down. That clue can be a sound, word, phrase, song, pretty much whatever you want. The other players pick a card from their hand that best matches that clue, and then, when all cards are shuffled and randomly laid out, they'll vote on which card they think is yours. Points are awarded, merriment is had, and then the role of active player passes to your left. What made Dixit such a good choice for a late-night game is that most of the gameplay is simultaneous, so you're not sitting there trying to keep your eyes open while minute after agonizing minute ticks away. I mean, I guess that could happen if one of the players had analysis paralysis, but I've never seen that in Dixit. People take about 10 seconds or so to pick a card in their hand and then another 10 or 20 seconds to vote. After the reveal, which is always a good time, you score 3 points if you correctly guess the active player's card. Plus, you get another bonus point for each person who voted for your card. Every once in a while, you'll manage a full sweep, getting everyone to vote for your card instead of the active player's. And that's definitely a moi-ah-ah kind of moment. 
So being the active player is tough, and not only because you don't know what cards the other players have in their hands. It's also a balancing act, because when you're the active player, points are all or nothing. If you want those coveted three points, you have to think of a clue that isn't too obvious and isn't too obscure, because if no one guesses your card, zero points. Everyone guesses your card, zero points. I love this rule. Like, if I were in middle school, I would draw hearts around it because it pushes you to dig deeper and come up with more interesting clues. You know the game, guess the really obvious answers to basic questions? No? That's because it doesn't exist, because no one wants to play that game. So what else makes Dixit so good? Well, the wonderfully weird artwork engages that right-brained creative center of your mind, and it also provides a window into other people's minds. You'll start to see who interprets the images on the cards more literally, who connects with them emotionally, and who's willing to get zero points that round because they just thought of a clue that will make everyone laugh. The real heart of the game is getting to know the people sitting at the table with you. It's about getting better at guessing their cards because you're better at knowing them. And when you're the active player, it's that sense of connection you feel with another player. That moment when you see the light bulb go on and you just know they've figured out your difficult or off-the-wall clue. Dixit has won a bunch of awards over the years, and that's because it's just fun. As I mentioned earlier, most of the action is simultaneous, and so it doesn't slow down with more players. In fact, I think Dixit is even better at higher player counts. You can buy a copy published by Asmodee for about 30 US dollars, and for that price point, I hope you get better component quality than I did in their 2016 edition. The components were serviceable, but cheap. Dixit is a game I can comfortably recommend to pretty much everyone. You can play it with kids, use it as an icebreaker at work, or bust it out with gamers in the wee hours of the night. If you already have other family weight games that involve giving clues about pictures, for example, Muse and Codenames Pictures comes to mind, then I'm not sure it would make much sense to add Dixit to your collection. But if you don't have one of those, this modern classic still holds up and could be the right game to fill that niche. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Oh Hell. As you well know, if you've listened to previous segments of mine, I love trick-taking games. I covered German Whist back in episode 47, and I went into some depth about the history of trick-takers there if you'd like some more background. I'm always looking to learn new traditional card games, both trick-takers I've not played, and brand new games I've never heard of before. Most traditional card games are what we refer to as folk games. That is, they're usually not a single set of standardized or published rules, but rather a regional or cultural variance from a central stem of gameplay. Often when we discuss folk tales, folk music, or folk games, we don't really think of them in a contemporary context, and I think that's to our detriment. It's unfortunate that the modern gamer uh, often views traditional French deck card games as somehow inferior or boring or simply less strategic than a brand new designer game they'd go buy. There's a pernicious tendency amongst people at any point in history to think of the people who came before them as less sophisticated than themselves and their contemporaries, and they very often hold their predecessors' entertainment in that same low regard. Now, of course, games come in and out of fashion, and a cursory view at the historical landscape might make it appear that my grandparents' generation only played Gen, Canasta, and Bridge. But there's a certain amount of survivor bias from the cultural artifacts of that generation's card gaming. The books and ephemera relating to those few most popular games disproportionately remind us of them when we think about games of the past. The reality is, of course, that people have been playing thousands of different card games for well over 500 years, many of which are incredibly challenging and deep. There are stubs of stubs of variants of rule sets of these thousands of games, and the organic evolution of them over time has led to new and totally distinct folk games. Folk games are usually taught by someone who knows the game well, 
often through close familial ties. Millions of players around the world have never even read the rules to gin rummy or hearts or spades. Over this past holiday, I went looking for a trick-taking game the family could play, since there are usually five of us that get together. When it's just four, we often play dominoes or hearts, but neither of those is really enjoyable at five. In perusing my many books on card games, I was reminded that Oh Hell plays three to seven, is a bidding trick-taker, and has a lot in common with other games everyone already knew well. Oh Hell popped up in the late 1930s, and while there are dozens of variants, I chose a very straightforward American rule set to learn and teach. Five-player Oh Hell lasts 19 rounds. Uh, this is easy to track because the first hand is a 10-card deal with two left over, the face-up card, and the whole card. Each hand, the last card after the deal is flipped face-up and becomes the trump card for the round. The second hand is a nine-card deal, the third hand is an eight-card deal, and so on, down to just one card per player, then back up again until the final hand when everyone has ten cards. Oh Hell hands play out like any other simple trick-taking game, but you don't really win by taking tricks. You win Oh Hell by bidding correctly. Unlike spades, you're not just trying to make your bid, and there are no partners. In Oh Hell, you're trying to make your bid exactly. So if you bid that you'll win three tricks, you get your three points, plus ten points for making your bid. But if you bid three and win four, you only get the four points. Bid three and only take two, you only get two points. Unlike some other bidding games, there's no penalty for not making your bid, but there's no way you're going to win if you don't make all your bids. Going nil, or for our listeners who aren't card game players, bidding that you will win zero tricks, is extra interesting, I think, in oh hell. If you successfully go nil, you get five points plus the number of cards dealt in the hand. So if you can go nil in the first round, you shouldn't. I mean, I guess you could try it, but it's incredibly unlikely. You can get 15 points, which is a lot of points in oh hell. Bidding order matters a lot here, as the dealer's the last to bid, which would be great since you know what everyone else has already bid, except there's the hook. To quote directly from Paget, The dealer may not bid the number that would cause the total number of tricks bid to equal the number of tricks available. In practice, that means that the dealer almost always has to overbid or underbid, unless someone before them has accidentally over or underbid. There's a lot of metagame in Ohel because it relies on a player's ability to judge the cards in their hand their seat position from the dealer, and the bidding of other players. So if you're playing with me, you know that I'm a coward, and I'm going to bid very conservatively. Thus, if I say I can take half the tricks in a round, I'm probably holding a ton of high cards, or I'm really long on the trump suit. Final scores in a five-player game usually range somewhere between 100 and 200. If you've scored under 100 points after 19 rounds, you're probably really bad at oh hell. Now, my favorite part of this lovely trick-taking game is how often people at the table, well, I mean, me anyway, actually say, oh hell, when they're forced to take a trick they don't want. This happens a lot. I would strongly recommend printing out one of the many score sheets available for free online. The scorekeeper in oh hell does quite a bit of work, and having a good form really helps. Oh hell was a huge hit with our family, including our grandmother, who's pushing 90 but still tack sharp at card games. So, who should play oh hell? People who love spades. People who love hearts. People who love rules-light bidding games with massive replayability people looking for a seven-player card game, and people who are bad at trick-taking partners but love to play anyway. I give Ohel 19 out of 19 rivet scrapes from a green Samsonite card table. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost. There are a lot of games about armed conflict. These games are often set in the distant past, which has the benefit of, first, giving game designers some flexibility in their portrayal of events, and second, giving players emotional distance from the import of what's happening in the game. Block by Block, the Insurrection game, turns that convention on its head. 
Designed by R.D. Lee and T.L. Simons and published in 2016 by Out of Order Games, Block by Block depicts rioting in a modern city. The game isn't about a real-life conflict, but think of Arab Spring, the riots in Greece, or the Ferguson unrest, and you'll have the idea. In Block by Block, you play one of four factions, students, workers, neighbors, or prisoners, working together to hold off the police and liberate the city, one block at a time. Thus the name, Block by Block. Each player has a secret goal or agenda. Players can coordinate their actions, but can't reveal their agendas. Though in practice, there are only a few different agendas, and once you know what they are, it's usually clear what players are going for. While most co-op games I've played get more difficult at higher player counts, Block by Block is one if two players achieve their agendas, regardless of how many people are playing. This makes the game often easier with more players. In the last game I played, early on I realized my agenda wasn't going to happen, abandoned it, and spent the rest of the game playing support to help the others achieve their agendas. It allows a certain flexibility that I enjoy very much in a co-op game. Now, Block by Block is actually semi-co-op, meaning that while most agendas are meant to be one together, there are two solo agendas, the Vanguardist and the Nihilist, and if either of them wins, the other players lose. Here I have to admit that I've only played Block by Block full co-op, with the non-co-op agendas removed. I'm sure semi-co-op changes the game a lot, adding a great deal of tension. However, I find the full co-op game plenty tense. Block by Block is played over a series of days. Players take their turns during the night, and the police move and take action at sunrise. Police reduce your mobility, remove your people from the map, and reclaim city blocks you've occupied. After each player turn, you draw action cards from the police ops deck. This could add more police, change their position, sometimes even reduce police presence if you're lucky, but you're rarely that lucky. Player turns are straightforward. You roll dice and use them to take actions, like move around the city, add more people to your faction, occupy a city block, build barricades, loot a shopping mall to gain useful items, or attack the police. This may feel uncomfortable to some. If you're playing a game about, say, the War of the Roses, it's easy to forget that the tokens you push around the board represent people fighting and dying. But when you're playing block by block and throwing Molotov cocktails at riot vans, you can't pretend it's about something else. The police are the enemy in this game. The very first page of the rulebook reinforces this by telling you the start player is the one who most recently had a negative interaction with law enforcement. There are some nice little details in Block by Block that fill out the theme, make it feel more real, like the special abilities for each faction. The prisoners, for example, are better at fighting, while the neighbors are better at building barricades. Because they live there and have access to barricade materials, they know where the old tires are. On the other hand, some details seem a bit odd if you think too much about it. Like, there's a police morale track that determines how many police ops cards you draw after each turn and how fast the countdown clock runs down. You can reduce police morale by attacking them and removing them from the city. I see what they're going for. When the rioters are in control, it's more difficult for the police to take action. But still, you attack the police and they respond by doing less? Maybe I'm overthinking this part. Rather than a board, block by block has square tiles representing city blocks, which you lay out on a cloth mat. The city map changes from game to game, which can affect gameplay pretty drastically. The art by designer T.L. Simons is very appealing, done in a graffiti style with people drawn as anthropomorphized blocks. To me, it feels a bit like Keith Haring meets Evan Dorkin. I'm not sure how well the art would work for colorblindness, and I'd hesitate to recommend Block by Block to someone with vision problems. That said, the card art is stylish and colorful, and reinforces the feel of the game taking place in a modern city. 
There's even a dog among the protesters on the rulebook cover, just like the Greek riot dogs. There's a tendency to assume that games aren't political unless they challenge your politics, but this is sloppy thinking. Most, if not all, games have a political point of view. It's just easier to ignore the politics if you agree with them. Placed as it is in the modern world, Block by Block pushes us to think about the political reality it depicts. This is one of its strengths, but more important than that, it's just fun. Challenging, strategic, with dramatic twists and turns, Block by Block can feel like an epic victory or defeat. And that's Block by Block. I've seen it from online sellers for an absurd amount of money, but you can get it direct from the publisher, out of order games, for a much more reasonable cost. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not building barricades out of old tires, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. Today I'm going to be talking about Villainous, designed by the collaborative group Prospero Hall, and published in 2018 by Wonderforge. This game puts two to six players in the roles of iconic Disney villains, and is a completely asymmetrical game, with each villain having their own evil plot to complete first in order to win. Interestingly, Villainous is readily available in big box stores, being marketed to a less hobby-focused audience. So I decided to bring in a less immersed-in-the-hobby gamer to talk about it. So similar to Mike and his daughter's father-daughter review of the Tea Dragon Society back in episode 38, here's a discussion of Villainous that features my mother, Liza. Alright mom, first of all, thanks for agreeing to do this. So unlike many of the games you've played, you were actually introduced to Villainous by some of your friends, and not by, well, me. What were your first impressions of the game? First impression? The overall look of the game. I loved the artwork and the pieces for each character. They felt good in your hand. After that impression, the panic set in. The game seemed so complicated. It is certainly a lot to take in at first. Each turn of the game involves an active player moving their character's pawn to a new location on a board and then taking the associated action. Player interaction comes from those actions that let you choose another player's fate deck to play cards from, with this cards being heroes or other setbacks that can follow their plans when played onto their personal board. This makes Villainous a trickier game to pick up than some, as since every player's goals, actions, and card abilities are very self-contained, then they're able to be very different. And the designer certainly took this and ran with it. How did you find the entirely asymmetrical nature of the game affected your experience as a player? I love it. It is quite tricky to master, and I have not. I do think it helps to stick with the same character when you're playing. For example, the first time I played Hades, I did not start moving my titans right away. I realise now that was a big mistake. Right, and it's easy to do on the first time with a villain, but it's certainly something you can learn from for subsequent plays. I've also found when I'm playing that it's better to start with smaller groups, especially with some of the more complicated characters. How have you found it? Yes, the fewer players, the easier it is to track what others are doing, and hopefully block them. Yeah, and definitely some characters are easier than others, but I know you said you thought that easier characters are also easier to block. Definitely. You you can see whether they're near the finish or not. Now, obviously the big appeal for many when it comes to villainous is the theme. And I know you're a fan of Disney and honestly a fan of Disney's villains in particular. So how well do you think they incorporated the theme into the game? Very well. Each villain stays true to character. I also found when we were playing, we seemed to take on our character's personality. It's a lot of fun, and I really don't think it will ever get old. 
And then, let's be honest, even if you master one villain, there's always another one to try. Especially because two standalone expansions have already been released for the game. Each of those can add to the selection of characters found in the base, or they can provide a two- or three-player game by themselves if you're interested in trying out Villainous, a game recommended by multiple generations of our family. Now, Mom, there's only one last question I have for you. Who's your favorite villain? I would say Hades. Though probably I'm biased, because I loved Hades long before Villainous was published. Nice. I'm personally looking forward to trying out Yzma from one of the expansions on Future Plays, especially that wrong lever card. And for everyone out there listening, my mom isn't on Twitter, but if you want to share who your favorite villains are with us, you can find me there at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Five By, the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 games Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5 games.com From all of us at The 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.